Hey everybody, I'm Eddie Starr, and this is the College of Rock and Roll Knowledge. Class is now in session. This is where the music and culture that shaped a generation live on, and my own path through the world of rock and roll. One evening in the 1960s, so the story goes, my mom was watching TV, an interview with Diana Ross, and she heard her mention producer and musician Arthur Wright. Moving forward to the spring of 1986 in Southern California, where I was about to graduate high school. And I already knew what I wanted to do. I was not going to go to school, even though all my friends mostly were. When people asked me what school I was going to, I told them I was going to the College of Rock and Roll Knowledge. little trivia for you there. That's where I got the title for this podcast. In fact, most people signed my yearbook by saying, good luck to you at the College of Rock and Roll Knowledge. At that time in the mid-1980s, there were not a lot of musicians around, or at least I couldn't find anybody that resonated with the style of music I wanted to play in my vision. So I thought, well, maybe if I find a producer who's willing to work with me and I can make a record and then form a band around that and start playing, that's that's my ticket. Because I don't think sitting around and running ads is going to bring me anybody except an Ingve wannabe. So I graduated and basically spent the summer hanging out. And uh, in September, my mom had said to me, who her and my dad had met Arthur Wright. And so she said, why don't you give Arthur Wright a call? And so I did. And I spoke to him for a few minutes on the phone. And he asked me to come up and meet with him at his office. And I did. And of course, I just basically laid out what I wanted to do, what my ideas were. He asked if I had a demo or any songs. And I really didn't know a whole lot about demos or really even writing songs. (laughs) So I just told him, oh, I didn't bring it with me. I just thought this would just be an introduction or for whatever. So he said, okay, well, why don't you come back in two weeks and we'll talk again. And, you know, I guess he must have saw something in me to invite me back after, you know, being unprepared or maybe he saw that I was, you know, naive. But (laughs) I went home and I had to figure out what I was going to do. So I put together like, you could say four ideas on a cassette, you know, me playing my guitar and singing. And about two and a half weeks later, I brought the tape to him. And so he decided he wanted to work with me. And so January of 1987, 
we were in the studio, Quad Tech uh, Studios in Los Angeles, and began recording. And uh, basically, there were like about four songs I had. I was writing and doing other stuff. Also, he had brought some songs that he wanted me to do. For instance, he wanted me to do, you know, completely remake this version of the Mama's and Papa's Monday, Monday, which I was really not into at all. But he thought, you know, we could make it like, you know, what you do with a cover song, make it you. And so anyway, uh, that didn't fly. And so after numerous starts and stops recording, uh, it just sort of, it just sort of went away. And uh, I moved on to other things. And uh, I tried acting for a while. And uh, then about 1995, I was living in the Hollywood Hills. And it was one of those moments where everything, the stars are aligned right and everything comes together. And I moved into this really cool building. Well, the building was cool, that's true, but it was really the people who lived there that made it really cool. A lot of artists and writers and, you know, TV people and stuff like that. And it was small and we were, it was a small group. It wasn't a large apartment complex or anything like that. And so I met a lot of people and I started writing songs and, you know, there was, I found a lot of people who sort of shared the style of music that I really enjoyed, which was the, you know, the punk rock from the mid seventies, the English sex pistols, penetration, Susie and the Banshees. And, uh, you know, a lot of the early British glitter music as well. Um, of course I did like some of the stuff that had come out of Los Angeles in the mid seventies, but by the time I really started coming of age and really getting into music, most of that music had all gone away and it was all um, new wave and metal. And I mean, there was a lot of cool bands that, you know, came out, but there wasn't anything that was that sort of straight ahead rock and roll, except, you know, of course, sort of uh, Joan Jett had come out with her early work and Billy Idol as well. So there were survivors from that whole scene from the seventies that had come forward and brought that style of music forward. So it was through them that I found, you know, other records and sort of that's where sort of my whole mix of music that I champion, you know, came together. And uh, anyway, I was introduced to this guy named Calvin Popejoy by this guy named Jeff, whose last name uh, escapes me at this moment. But he introduced me to Calvin, uh, and he was a lead guitar player. And so we started writing some songs together. And so I had about four songs, four or five songs, and uh, we made a demo. And so I had, I was still in touch with Arthur, right? And so I called him up and 
he listened to it and he said, oh, well, you know, can you improve upon this? And he had some criticisms and stuff. And so basically Calvin turns out he had some connections of his own and he knew this guy. He introduced me uh, to Fred Schroeders, who is best known for his work with Hiroshima. He's a great session musician and producer. And uh, he produced four songs. So um, the song Numb, uh, Bleed, and there were a couple other songs, which I won't mention, that did not make the final cut of the Generation Zero album. That you'll have to hear at some other time. But anyway, we did four songs. And Fred was great. We did everything, you know, everything was done sort of like that layering process of the drums and then the guitars and the bass. And I played rhythm guitar and Calvin played his lead guitar. And Calvin was really an amazing lead guitar player. And he was playing around and, you know, with a bunch of promising L.A. bands at that time. And so we did those four songs and they came out great. And so... I went back to Arthur Wright and I played those songs and, you know, we sent them out to some labels and stuff. And, you know, basically I was told, keep writing. So I started writing some other songs and I I don't remember who or what, because it's a long time ago, but I got sent over to the San Fernando Valley and I met this guy named Rick James and not Rick James of Super Freak, but just Ricky James, studio owner slash engineer. And so I started, I had like three songs. One was a holdover from my days, the early days working with Arthur Wright. And then there was a couple other new songs I had written. And um, so... We played him. He also played drums. So I think it was me and him playing. And of course, I didn't have a bass player or anything like that. So he found a bass player. And then uh, he said, oh, I know this guy who you will probably really click with. And his name is Kelly. And he's really into like, you know, the Sex Pistols, but he loves ACDC. And his guitar playing is really like... The Sex Pistols meets ACDC. So I said, cool. So I met Kelly. He came down. He played the lead guitar tracks on these demos. And it came out really great. And we really hit it off because he really understood where I was coming from. And, of course, you have to put this in the context of this is pre-internet. So a lot of times, you know, mentioning like, oh, the Stooges or mentioning Iggy Pop, Lust for Life or the idiot or talking about the runaways or generation X or any of those bands. Not many people knew who they were because you have to remember that. Yeah. Billy Idol had, you know, 1983, he had become a big star, but a lot of people in America really weren't as familiar with that generation X. In fact, it was my friend Dave, who you probably remember who uh, came on here, who does, uh, press play with Dave and Charles, he came on and, well, he was my best friend in high school. And he's the one who turned me on to like Generation X and just countless bands. And uh, so 
nobody really knew that, but he did know that. Kelly did know that. And, you know, he was like, well, let's form a band. And he was able to bring in Don McCurdy. It was just a monster drummer. Really great. And then we found this guy, Matt, who to play bass. And we did go through a fair share of bass players. And um, anyway, so we went around and we played some shows. Me and Kelly wrote some songs together. And we were able to really work out the songs live, which was really cool. And we were really a, a very tight and great sounding band. Always were. Well rehearsed. We rehearsed at uh, Fortress Studios in Hollywood. Michael Rummins, who, of course, was, I think, in the Hollywood All-Stars, Kim Fowley's band. Some more trivia. <laughs> and uh, so we were ready. When we went in the studio and we did like about eight songs, I think it was eight songs, because I already had the other tracks for, that I'd done with Fred Schroeder's. And... Um, Matt left the band. He had some type of emergency anyway, but he had to leave California. So we were without a bass player. Kelly Charles switched to bass. Don McCurdy on drums, and I was playing rhythm guitar. And so we went in the studio with Arthur Wright and uh, engineered by Charles Givens. And we, we were like a locomotion a state, you know, like a freight train coming at you. Cause we just did take after take. Most of the songs were done in one take. And, uh, I think rejected. We did twice because the first take, the feeling wasn't right. We didn't, you know, we wanted to try another take, but I mean, I remember engineer Charles Givens coming out and just saying, my God, he said, I have never seen a band. We, you know, that just bam, bam, nail it, nail it, nail it time after time. And so that album was done in like an afternoon in one afternoon. And, uh, then Kelly had to come back and, you know, overdub his solos and I, you know, did the vocals and, and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, unfortunately at the time, because we didn't have the correct business people around us, that album, didn't go anywhere and consequently the band didn't either you know we played a f well the album was completed in 1997 and we played throughout 1998 until march of 1999 and it was march 1999 when that was the you know the last show that we played at the whiskey and it wasn't those tracks wouldn't see the light of day until uh 2013, October 8th, 2013, when they came out. And so, you know, it was a great band. It was a great experience making that record. It really did take a long time. There were numerous starts and stops, but um, it was fun. And I had a lot of great people working with me. And I'm so blessed to have had that experience. And that band... I mean, we were, I mean, I, I always judge things by, you know, when I'm playing or I'm playing a song, 
I'm such a fan myself that I always think, you know, what do I want to hear? What would I want to hear if I, you know, from a favorite artist or, you know, how would I want that band to sound like? I never would want to be, you know, a disappointment. And so um, that's one thing I can always say is that, you know, Eddie Starr and the Zero Effect, we kicked ass. And if you want to hear the band live, you can... um, there's the EP live from Hollywood, which also came out on October 8th, 2013 with the generation zero album, because those recordings, you know, hadn't really ever been heard, you know, along with the band. So, um, that was recorded live at the blue saloon in North Hollywood, California on October 31st, 1998. And I'll give you a little story, a little backstory about uh, (laughs) that night because I'll never forget it because uh, I had to pick up a couple of the guys and we were going to go to like some diner or something and sit and chat before we had to. Our equipment had already been taken over the Blue Saloon, so it was already set up and ready to go for sound check. So I just had my guitar and some other, you know, clothes, I think, to change stage clothes to change into. And we were driving. Uh, yeah, I picked up the guys. Uh, uh, I think our bass player, Vince, lived in uh, like Lakewood or Long Beach. And then there was Kelly who lived in the Valley. So I think Vince met at my apartment and then we drove over. Uh, the hill and we're on Lancashire Boulevard and at the time that's when they were putting in the subway and all that stuff and you know they had this big sign on Lancashire Boulevard your tax dollars at work when the street had been like torn up for I don't know probably 10 years and anyway hit a bump and I didn't think anything about it because it wasn't anything big it was just the road was bumpy right so we meet at this diner and uh, we're sitting around chatting, you know, and stuff like that. And uh, the restaurant, uh, not the waitress, but the manager of the restaurant came up and said, hey, man, is that your car out there? And I'm like, yeah, I said, man, there is oil all over my parking lot. So it turns out that the bump I had hit had busted a hole in my oil pan and all the oil had was just all over their parking lot. So, of course, it was like, oh, my God, we've got to, you know, get over to the club. And also, so, so I had to call a cab. And, you know, it's not like New York getting a cab. So <laughs> had to get a cab. I think uh, Don uh, had driven and met us. And so he took Kelly over to the club. And I think it was me and Vince and some of our equipment that um, we had to get in the cab and I had to also arrange for my car to be towed and all that stuff, but it was a great show. And uh, I got a tape of those, uh, that show somehow. I forget who gave it to me, but anyway, so we're going to take this, those tracks and we put out a few uh, tracks from that show. So anyway, you should check it out because it is a great document of a band with a lot of potential. And I still believe in that band and I'm a fan myself. And, uh, when I listen to it, it's exactly what I would, what I remember going to see when I went to shows, 
when I went to see, you know, Joan Jett and the Blackhearts, when I went to see, you know, bands like X or, you know, any numerous other bands that I saw during that time growing up in Los Angeles. It's exactly what I would expect. And it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of excitement. And so, you know, if you get a chance, go over to Spotify. You can hear those albums there. You can buy them on iTunes. And uh, anyway, I want to thank you for listening, uh, sharing, subscribing to this podcast. I know it's been a while since I've put out an episode. So thanks for hanging in there. Uh, Thanks for listening to the music. Because that's what this is, right? The College of Rock and Roll Knowledge. And I do love rock and roll. And so I'll be back soon. Until next time, have a safe and happy Halloween. Or maybe I want to take back safe. How about a little danger? How about have a dangerous Halloween? Be like Iggy, right? Give me danger. All right. That's it. Thank you. Rock on. Eddie Stars, the College of Rock and Roll Knowledge, is a production of Tonup Incorporated. Copyright 2021 Tonup Incorporated.